Stubbornly strong, clearing a low bar and later and slower. Welcome, it's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Well, we'll explain that. Here comes our week in review. I'm Danny Clayton, Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist. Welcome. It's great to be here. Dave Spano, President and CEO. How are you doing? Well, you know, when you say stubbornly strong, is Brian the strong and I'm the stubborn? I'm not really sure. <laughs> See, but I keep thinking magically delicious, but that's a cereal. That's so, exactly right. right. But, you know, you know what, really what we're talking about there is the fact that GDP report came in at 3.3%. In fact, it was a bit stunning to most economists. It really was. I know I was stunned by it. I mean, you should have seen my surprised face that I made when that came out. A lot of us were expecting it was going to be a bigger slowdown uh, from the third quarter. Third quarter growth was 4.9%, and that was very strong. So we thought that, eh, there's going to be some payback here. Maybe it'll be in the low 2%, but instead you get 3.3% annualized. And when you get into the details, there's even more strength there. And that's, I think, what was most exciting about it is that we actually saw a positive contribution to growth from residential investment. We know housing has been in this rolling recession along with manufacturing, and maybe the rolling recession could be coming close to an end. Yeah, and we talk about rolling recession, we're talking about industries, for example, manufacturing with 13 or 14 straight months in a row, and of course, housing of what we alluded to. But you look at that, and of course, last quarter, more than 4% GDP growth. This quarter, at least preliminary, was 3.3%. It might get revised down as we get into it. But either way, it's positive GDP in far away from all of the so-called naysayers yep. who said that we were going to have a recession in 23. Well, that hasn't happened. And so we start to look into 2024 and say, will we eventually have to pay the piper? That's right. And actually, a lot of the strategists who were predicting a recession in 2023 seem like they're actually just changing the goalposts, moving those a little bit, where it's like, well, we're going to recycle these recessionary fears. Yes, we've got some good momentum now, but it is going to come back to bite us maybe towards the end of 2023. But you can't really count out the U.S. consumer or even U.S. businesses as far as their ability to adapt to what has been a rather challenging environment by design by the Fed. And somewhat the humorous thing about this is the Fed started hiking in March 2022. And most people would have thought it should have been a drag on growth, and it was. That's the rolling recession part as far as the specific industries. But the strength of the consumer continuing to swing from spending on goods towards services has really propped up the economy. And in fact, 2023 growth was faster than 2022 growth. So instead of being a drag on growth, it actually you saw a growth acceleration. So let me take the other side of the argument, and I don't mean to be Debbie Downer here. There are a lot of things that we need to pay attention to one of those is all of the stimulus that was put mm-hmm. in, especially fiscal stimulus, is beginning to run out. And we're starting to see that by credit card debt. We saw a report from Discover and they confirmed that. That's true. Yeah. So Discover Financial, when they reported their results, they noted that credit card delinquencies had increased more than what a lot of people were expecting. Then we also had Visa reporting and they said that in January, they've already seen a rather dramatic drop in volume of transactions. Now, maybe some of that is weather related. We know the extreme weather, but there are signs that some parts of the consumer segments are beginning to show that fatigue. And I don't really want to get into politics because, you know, we live in a 50-50 world, 
But really, you talk about a number of those things, and the fact that we have positive GDP is generally good for the incumbent. But at the mm-hmm. same time, the incumbent seems to want to step on his toes with what just happened with the natural gas exports. Yeah, it was a little surprising, and maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by it, but uh, President Biden decided that he was going to stop the development, at least for now, of natural gas export terminals. So one of the uh, great things in the United States over the last few years has been like a renaissance of energy as far as exporting oil and natural gas. And we know that our friends in Europe, they have been heavily dependent on Russian gas. And maybe he was pandering a little bit to his political base, saying that they want to put moratorium on the development of new natural gas terminals. Well, you know, what about the people who were going to build those, that type of investment? And does this actually help our friends in Europe and the Ukraine situation? And let me point out a couple of things. Uh, Number one is we are really the the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. We create a lot of it. And if there isn't these terminals to accept this natural gas, Brian, what happens to it? Well, then basically it gets caught here in the United States. And they burn it. Yes, they, they burn it. They just burn it, yes. Yeah, so it, it's uh, they can flare it off. They flare it, exactly And, and right. that's one of the things that, from an environmental perspective, I'm not sure this actually helps the situation, especially if those other countries now become more dependent upon, say, coal, which right. is much dirtier than natural gas. And, and speaking of coal users and people who really don't seem to care about the <laughs> environment, let's talk about China and what they did. They really talked about stimulus. They did. They've been stepping up the rhetoric and actually quite literally, uh, first of its kind, the People's Bank of China, the head of it, he came out and said, in two weeks, we are going to cut the required reserve ratio for banks. Now, that might sound a little wonky, but basically what it does is it allows banks to lend more money. It's a form of monetary stimulus. It's almost like a supercharged form of cutting interest rates. And he announced that he was going to do it. Usually that type of thing, they just post on their website. That's the way they do it. He really wanted to underscore that they're serious about doing monetary stimulus. You also now have the Chinese government coordinating with state-owned enterprises to actually bring back onshore about 270 to $280 billion in money to help prop up the stock market over there. And they're propping up their stock market. And at the same time, we're having earnings reports come out right now and it's every stock for itself. We yeah. saw that Tesla did not do well and it was punished, but there was a number of companies who had better than expected earnings and they got rewarded. They did, yeah. Earnings do matter whether or not you beat. And oftentimes it does boil down to the guidance. What are the forecasts that they are giving for 2024 and even the longer term? The Magnificent Seven and Tesla was one of those. Uh, it almost seems like it's now the Magnificent Six or are they a little bit of a misfit in terms of the Magnificent Seven crowd. Earnings do matter, and that is the reason why we vet every single position, be it a stock, a mutual fund, or an individual security. If you aren't doing that on your own or getting that from your own advisor, we invite you to go through the process because we will give that to you. We'll give you a report card of what you own. We ask you why you own it and how much you're paying for that, and you can get that through a process we call the Wealth Metric. Yep, it starts at AnnexWealth.com. Just click that Get Started button. Folks, this past Wednesday, we had a really nice webinar, Cash on the Sidelines, What to Do Next. We had such tremendous attendance. I thought we were going to bring that system down, but you guys did a great job on it. If you weren't able to join us for that, if you're in a situation like that, where you're sitting on a lot of cash, you need some help, reach out to us, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button, and we'll take it from there. That is our Week in Review. 
It's always available on demand at the top of the hour, wherever you get your podcasts and in the Axiom newsletter. Still to come on the show, a closer look at the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. What makes them tick? This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, Saturday, January 27th. We're going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. Back on the show, you know, we talk often about our YouTube channel, and we're populating it with brand new videos all the time, new on the Annex Wealth Management YouTube channel, understanding spousal social security, inheriting money, the do's and don'ts, do houses make terrible wealth transfer vehicles, passion assets, and then Henry's, and Henry's stands for high earners, not rich yet. We're going to meet you where you're at. Annex Comprehensive Wealth, which is the sweet spot for many of our clients. Annex Private Client for complex needs and high net worth. And Annex Ignite, if you're just starting out, it all starts at AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Still to come on the show, we're going to talk about the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Ask Annex is coming up. And then toward the end of the show, Election Year Myths. I'm Danny Clayton, Dr. Brian Jacobson in the studio. Dave Spano is our president and CEO. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Brian and I have created a lot of content uh, this week. Uh, Most recently, we talked about cash on the sidelines. We've put that presentation up, and Brian, it was great interaction on that webinar this week. It really was. It was a lot of fun to be in the new studio and our headquarters and to field people's questions. Honestly, you know, I come into a presentation and I have my prepared slides, but really what makes it energizing and exciting is when I can address individual specific questions, right? They have questions about the markets and the economy, and that's what we are able to do is talk about how to make cash work for you, and then also how to put it to work. And speaking of questions, at the end of the show today, Brian and I are going to talk about four better questions for investors. So stick around. A lot of great content coming up. We're looking forward to that. Uh, Sign up for the Axiom. That's our free weekly newsletter. That delivers on Sundays. Social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. I talked about the YouTube channel. The Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast, we think, is really a jewel. If you're into the markets and you want to get in deep, that is the place. That is presented from the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Also, New on AnnexWealth.com, Annex Resources and Research. We call it Annex R&R, but a lot of great stuff. It's what we believe in here, which is fiduciary advice, comprehensive strategy, and empowering education. It's all for you, including getting going with us for 2024 and beyond. It all starts at AnnexWealth.com. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? Our radio shows always begin with a week in review recap of the market. And we mentioned the investment committee, but who and what makes up that investment committee at Annex Wealth Management? We're here to find out. Joined by Matt Morsey, CFP and investment team manager at Annex. Hey, Matt. Hey, Danny. Brian Jacobson, chief economist, Annex Wealth Management. Welcome to you. It's great to be here. Brag on that crew a little bit, Matt. Let's talk about the investment committee. Yeah, I love being a part of this team. We certainly have a smart group of, of gentlemen here, multiple CFAs, CFPs, even a couple PhDs, you know, including yourself here, Brian, multiple master's degrees as well. It's fun being on a team where even with an MBA and a master's degree, you know, you look up to everybody else on the team. Brian, please describe the scope of what Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee is doing on behalf of our clients. Sure. We're really in charge of overseeing all of the investments. And this committee consists of 14 people ranging from traders all the way up to the CEO. He participates quite regularly in our discussions. And really what we're trying to do is identify opportunities and risks and then take decisive and informed action on behalf of our clients to help steward their funds. 
I've heard the phrase committee views. Does that mean a particular philosophy? I want to think with a group as diverse as what we've got, there's a variety of viewpoints. There are, and I think that's actually a feature, not a bug. One of the challenges, I think, in running a committee is you oftentimes get into groupthink, where everybody comes at a problem with the same perspective. We don't have that, and actually that's by design. Because of the breadth and depth of the committee, we come at a variety of problems from different philosophies. Matt, you guys aren't cloistered. I mean, it's not unusual for members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee to actively interact with our wealth managers. Yeah, it's a really interesting part of the job and, and joining client meetings and, and being kind of that support system for our wealth managers is, is a lot of fun. Here at Annex, you know, when we meet with our clients, we're building specific and customized financial plans for them, but we're also able to do that from a portfolio standpoint too. If people have tax constraints, maybe they've got positions that they brought into us that are legacy positions or something that they were inherited from a parent and they want to hold on to it, we're able to work around those positions, help them create that portfolio that's best suited for them. Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee located at our headquarters. It's a really busy place to be. A lot of monitors, a lot of graphs, a lot of research information. Matt, I'll take you first. Is this mission control or is this NFL draft room? Oh, I love this question. Uh, to me, it's a draft room. I think, you know, when we stand and we start to monitor the positions in the portfolio, just like you would monitor positions on an NFL team, and you're deciding who is the right one for that and what role are they going to play within that portfolio, it's very similar to the draft room idea of trying to get those players into that position to succeed in the best way. Brian, as chief economist, are you more 30,000, 60,000 feet? Where are you? I like to actually go all the way, maybe at three feet, all the way up to 60,000. It really depends upon the topic. I have a a background as far as doing analysis, but then also the bigger macro picture. I learn a ton from our traders and the analysts who are more digging in the dirt. So they're not even at the three-foot level. They're at the subterranean level trying to find opportunities. The investment committee meets a lot. You've got four formal meetings, all hands on deck early in the week. Without exposing the ingredients to the secret sauce, what happens in those meetings? Yeah, it's a time for us to get together and discuss what's going on. We have specific meetings that are just about the equity market, specific meetings just about the fixed income markets, and then about the macro as well, too. And it's a chance for all of us to get together, share those diverse views. Everyone can share what they're working on, what they're seeing, and we can go through and make those portfolio decisions that we need. One of the key things is everybody needs to be prepared, and then we also want everybody to participate. So in these meetings, we have an agenda, and part of it is to do your pre-work. So that's the preparation. Everybody comes in with a perspective that they're willing to share, but also they're open-minded. We're willing to recognize that we have to approach these things with some humility, because you use the idea between mission control versus the NFL draft room. Remember, in the NFL, there's a lot that's outside of your control. You're playing against a different team here. Mission control, a lot more like physics. There's a lot more that's under your control, a lot more predictability. The markets are anything but fully predictable like you would see in mission control. You know, I didn't know until a couple of years ago that Annex Wealth Management with an in-house team, a little different. There are firms on our level that do what we do that farm this out. Sure. That is one of the approaches. And we decided that it was actually in the best interest of clients when we can offer them individual strategies and actual portfolios as opposed to just farming it out. Now, every firm is going to have their different approach to managing, whether it's managing the relationships, managing the portfolio. Maybe they want to just focus on trying to gather assets. We decided that it was actually better to design things to be stewards of those assets as opposed to just trying to farm that out, sub-advise it to somebody else. 
Folks, if you really like the nitty gritty of this type of subject, you got to check out the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast. I know you're both involved with it. Yeah, that one's a lot of fun. And it's a great way for us to get together as a team. It helps us in our preparation and our review of our client portfolios as well, too, because those two things are very interlinked. But it allows that conversation to happen both internally within the investment team and the investment committee, but also that we could display it outwards in terms of what those conversations are like and really trying to highlight things that are going on in the market. Yeah, I think it's a great way to kind of peel it back as far as almost pull back the curtain as to what are the discussions that we have at those meetings. Because oftentimes I go into the SWAT podcast, a lot of preparation, but you are thinking out loud. You're bouncing ideas off of each other. So there's a lot to be said for that kind of spontaneity. Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management. Thanks. Thank you. Matt Morsey, CFP and Investment Team Manager. Thank you. Thank you. Before we head to break, a couple of things you can do on the weekend. Sign up for the Axiom, our free weekly newsletter. We're on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Great YouTube channel with over 1,500 Annex Wealth Management videos. Bottom of the hour, time to get caught up. And for that, let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Time for Ask Annex. Our website is the place to go if you got a question for us. And we want to hear from everybody. You don't have to be a client. It's AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask tab. In the studio, Fred Coleman, a CFP and a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Danny. And we got Matt Morsey, investment team manager and a CFP at Annex Wealth Management, part of the investment committee. Welcome. Hey, Danny. Okay, here we go. Number one, I'm stuck trying to find an appropriate S&P 500 index fund. There are so many. How do I evaluate them? Great question. And it's kind of amazing how many different ones that they are. How I would look at it first and foremost is what are you really trying to accomplish? Because there are going to be different ways for them to weight the same holdings within the S&P 500. So the two most common ways is market cap weight, which is basically the largest companies. So right now, think like Apple and Microsoft are going to be the biggest part of that fund. The other would be equal weight, where it takes all 500 odd names and then makes them the exact same weight. So it doesn't matter which company it is, but they all are weighted the same. There can be very, very differences in terms of what your return level is going to be in those based on you know which companies are outperforming or underperforming. But you want to make sure you have the actually the right mix of what you're trying to accomplish. After that, I would look at what the expense ratio is. If you have two identical investments and the only difference is the expense ratio, obviously pick the one that has the lowest one. You're going to get a better end return if you're paying lower fees. So I would look at those types of things. Another maybe last thing to look at is if you want to go ETF or mutual fund, you could do both. So it depends on kind of what you want to do with it. Is it something you're going to be actively trading? ETF is probably going to be a better route. If it's a mutual fund longer term, again, make sure you're looking at those expense ratios. And if you're at a custodian, they might actually have their own version of it in terms of mutual fund form where they might not charge you a buy or sell fee. Same thing with an ETF too. You might be able to trade that without a buy or sell fee to it. So you're going to want to look at see what's the most flexible for you. Fred, I think this one's for you. If I add in the value of my home, I've got a decent net worth. But does it matter if a house is pretty illiquid? Yeah, when it comes to a house, it's a huge asset and it looks really good on the balance sheet. And when we build financial plans out, we do include that on your net worth. However, it doesn't come into play unless you decide to sell it or if you're going to use it for some form of collateral. So if you do plan on selling it at some point, then we would build that into your plan to show that sale and how it benefits your overall outlook. If you don't plan on selling it, essentially it has very low relevance. Would you say that like the millennials, the Gen Xers are probably in that group, right, where they might be house rich, but kind of cash poor? Yeah, a lot of people, you know, you buy that house when you're in your 20s and your 30s, and that grows pretty substantially and becomes your largest asset. But eventually you pay that house off and your 401ks and your other investments usually catch up. 
Question three on Ask Annex. Please settle an argument. Is the Magnificent Seven just the latest version of the Fang stocks? Yes, I know there are five companies in the Fang versus seven in the Mag Seven. It certainly is. And we always go through these cycles where there's going to be a few stocks or a group of stocks that are going to get a nickname and then everyone's going to be talking about it. I mean, you think back to the 60s and 70s, there was a thing called the Nifty 50. These were large blue chip companies. At that point, it was always thought, hey, you could always buy these things no matter what the price is. They're never going to go down and you're going to do okay. That was the thought process for a while. But we go through these cycles all the time, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, again, tech, just kind of like it is now. But you've got these companies that get grouped together and people love talking about them. The more and more that we have cable news shows that are all about the stock market, more and more the internet and social media takes on, it's easy for these things to get a nickname and get a following and it becomes a big thing. What you really want to look at, I think, from my perspective is, you know, what is the impact they're having on the market? That's going to ebb and flow over time in terms of what those groups are. Magnificent Seven really is looking at the biggest companies that are out there right now, and they've had an outsized return from a market perspective over the last year or so. But just before that, it was Fang at one point in time. But, you know, they've got down years as well, too. And maybe a new group of stocks takes over and gets a a catchy nickname and people start following them, too. Cool group of stocks right now, right? And not to say that they're not good companies, but one thing that I've seen with these companies is that they're trading at prices that usually reflect future growth. And you could be right, you could be wrong, but when the risk of these companies don't outperform the expectations, then you can start seeing a lot of volatility. Is there a dirty 30? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should work on that. Final question on Ask Annex. What's the reason to buy a mutual fund A share? Yeah, you know, when we look at different share classes, we're investing on behalf of our clients is what is the best potential return they're going to get from a fee standpoint, you know, when you take those out. So due to the size of Annex and the client accounts, the relationships we have with the brokerage firms, we have access to all different share types and we can go ahead and negotiate with them what their buy or sell fee might be with them. But also we're looking for things that are going to be the lowest net expense ratio for them overall. Generally, when you think of things like A shares, for most people, if you're going to go to a brokerage firm or to a broker dealer to some extent, they're going to get a big front and load to that, you're essentially trying to pay upfront for a fee to be accessed over a period of time. When we use A shares here, there is no big load. We have what's called load waived A shares that we have access to. So there's an expense ratio that they are going to pay every single year, but not that big front end fee to it. We also have access to what's called institutional share classes, which have a lower expense ratio even yet um, compared to A shares. We're analyzing those on the best interest of our clients to see what is going to produce for them the best long-term result. Matt Morsey, Investment Team Manager, thanks. Thank you. Fred Coleman, CFP, Wealth Manager, Annex Wealth Management, thank you. Thank you, Danny. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management, and we are sure you have noticed it's an election year. A lot of time between now and November, which means TV ads, radio ads, talk show talk, direct mail, arguments over coffee, all sorts of things. And there's all sorts of myths about what an election does or doesn't do to the economy. How can you make sense of this? Stick around. We've got a special presentation coming up you won't want to miss. Joining us, Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services, Annex Wealth Management. Hello, Tom. Hello, Danny. And Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning Development, CFP and a CDFA at Annex Wealth Management. Hi, Danny. Tom, you point out that we are drinking from a fire hose of media. How bad is it? Believe it or not, Danny, consumers around the world spend seven and a half hours with media. And I think it's safe to assume that if that's the average around the world, the people in the United States are consuming even more of that. So it's definitely a factor when we look at this stuff. 
the end, you've been doing this a while, this financial and retirement planning thing. Have the myths always been with us or are they getting worse or even amplified? Right. Well, so all these headlines that Tom alluded to inevitably try to link market returns or agendas that affect the economy or investments during elections. And with that, of course, comes a lot of public opinions. Danny, have you noticed that we put more weight into the opinions of those who agree with us? We all do this. We tend to seek out facts that reaffirm our opinions. It's called confirmation bias. We all do it as humans because we need to be right, right? So relating this to the presidential election, there are these common sayings or thoughts that may or may not be based in fact. We're calling these myths more of an academic definition, I think, of general assumptions, and they may or may not be true. One major myth centers around one party being inherently better for the markets or the economy. Well, that can't be a myth. I saw it on the internet. Oh, well, if it was on the internet, then it has to be true. So a couple things here. You know, one party, which party, I suppose is one thing you could ask. But there is an important distinction that you mentioned, Danny, and that's, you said, better for the markets or the economy. It's very important for people to understand those are two different things. The markets and the economy are related, but they are not the same. The other thing is when you look at one party affecting whether it's the markets or the economy, you've got the presidency, you've got Congress, lots of different combinations of those parties in there. Each one of those is going to have a different result based on how you crunch the numbers. And that's something we'll talk about during this presentation. Another myth, the stock market can predict who wins the presidency. You know, the answer is a lot of the time it does seem to in the very short period of three months before a presidential election year. Now, the stock market actually has an interesting track record on this myth. Since World War II, when the S&P 500 falls in the three months leading up to the November vote during a presidential election year, the incumbent president has lost the election 88% of the time. Similarly, when the S&P 500 rises during that period, the incumbent has won 82% of the time. So, okay, we have to keep in mind, though, we're talking about a very short period in the stock market, three months here, about before the election. But the answer is interesting. Actually, volatility evens out in the three months after then. Election year myths, there are plenty, and we're going to cover them in an upcoming presentation. We're with Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services, Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development, CFP and a CDFA at Annex Wealth Management. I've heard that a divided government is good for the economy. Well, Danny, based on what I've been seeing in terms of divided government, the the economy should be good all the time, right? (laughs) Because all we hear about is divided government. Kind of alluded to this already in a prior conversation we're having here. There is a variety of ways the government can be divided between parties, all party control throughout, divided within the House of Representatives and the Senate, and then the presidency. All those things are going to have an impact. And so we're going to have to drill down deeper to see exactly which combination of things has an impact. How about this? Another election year myth. The market is always more volatile near the election. Yeah, right. So this myth is based on the fact that it's uncertainty before the election that causes everyone's nerves. And that uncertainty causes volatility because it impacts investor behavior again. So it seems likely to increase that volatility surrounding the election, no matter which political party wins, with growth anticipated over the long term after, again, no matter which political party is in power. 
Bottom line, elections are times when misinformation can proliferate and cause problems. Take your time, sort it out, be careful of confirmation bias, seek trusted resources who can provide insight without bias. Deanne, we got an in-person education event coming together and it's for Lake Country. Great chance to explore this topic deeply with the help of you and Tom. That's right. So make sure that you are not perpetuating this myth information, right? It's called Election Year Investment Myths and it's happening on Tuesday, February the 6th at the Delafield Hotel, East Ballroom, 415 Genesee Street in Delafield. You can go and register online, AnnexWealth.com, under the Events tab. Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Danny. And as always, Dan Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development, CFP, and a CDFA at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Back on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. This show is going to be available as a podcast at the top of the hour. Most of our stuff is, so wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Clayton, Dr. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist in the studio. Dave Spano is our president and CEO. You know, I think there's four questions that every advisor should review with their clients, and it's mm-hmm. just part of the process. And one of those, and I know this sounds a bit repetitive. What is your tolerance for risk? Mm-hmm. And we really have to start there. It is not as basic as you think it sounds. That's right. I think a lot of people just sort of look at risk and think, well, what's my capacity for taking it? What's my financial situation? Can I do some sort of projection? And am I going to hit my goal or get close to it? But there's a really deep emotional and psychological dimension to risk about how we feel it. You know, And if you think about the history of the financial markets, so the S&P 500 going back to 1950, about once every 1.8, 1.9 years, you get at least a 10% drawdown mm-hmm. from peak to trough. And will you lose sleep over that? If so, you know, you might want to consider diversification, not just being in equities. There's capacity for risk. There's tolerance for risk. What's the difference? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And really, the, you know, what can you tolerate and where can you go in the portfolio mix? And that's what we do. We go through a process, Danny, and we really stress test it. And then we put it up on the screen and say, to, to put it in numbers form, if you have $500,000 and it is now worth 450000 will you lose sleep? And we put pictures to it. We put numbers to it. And then we elicit responses. And I think that's really the healthy start. Okay. The second question I think folks should should ask is how confident am I in my plan? In other words, do you think you will be able to retire on time? That's right. And obviously, if you think about your retirement, the best laid plans can change. And so you might have flexibility as far as what that retirement date is. But a lot of us, you know, we do have that goal, you know, 65, 70, whatever it is. And you don't necessarily want to be forced to change your plans. You want to have confidence that you can hit that target and then choose to change your plans. And if, if and that's that, a good that's a great point. Choose to, because sometimes our clients don't have that choice for whatever reason, be it health related, not Mm -hmm. only of themselves or their spouse would be one of those reasons. Number two, companies get bought and sold. There could be displacement. There's a lot of reasons that you might lose that choice. So delaying that action really could be harmful. It really could be. And, you know, one of the ways in which I think uh, we deal with this in a nice way is trying to stress test a strategy. So it's not just about looking at historical averages. It's also looking at the ranges of possible outcomes. And then what happened, like if you retire during a bear market or what happens if you start contributing during a bear market, right? These are different scenarios that we can run through with clients to really kind of stress test the strategy. 
Now, here we are uh, doing media, and it's a financial media show, but you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of financial media? And I will tell you, we put televisions in all of our offices, not only to show clients what their portfolios look like, but for us to keep on top of things. But there's no question, one of these advisors came to me and said, would you mind if I turned off the financial media? And honestly, I don't really blame them sometimes because it can be a lot of noise. Uh, What we do here, it's really about empowering education. And I've always kind of viewed education as also entertainment, right? People absorb it better if it can be done in an entertaining fashion. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so honored to be here and be part of this. Whereas in the financial... we're honored to have you, my friend. Oh, thank you. But the financial media, I think they've gone way over to the entertainment part and not necessarily the education part. Remember, they want you to watch, to instill that sense of urgency that you need to tune back in. Otherwise, you're going to miss out on something vitally important. You know, it's one of the weird things is I'll be in the studio working on something and I'll look over my shoulder at CNBC and all of a sudden there's Brian Jacobson. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> I didn't even know you were arguing right. with somebody. And then Friday you're on Yahoo News. So, I mean, it's just yeah. you're on quite a bit, but. And he's, he's so much better on television. <laughs> That's right. So much better on television than in, in person, radio, trust me. Yeah. Uh, and then one more question I want to get to before the show is over here is what is my decision-making mm. process? And I think that's important. It is because most people, when they're investing, it might just be a mishmash of stuff that they've kind of collected along the ways. It becomes a junk drawer of sorts. Here on our investment committee, we have a systematized and very structured decision-making process. I'm reminded of the story about how Japanese trains, how they run and the conductor gets off, they have their checklist, they point, they say it, they want to make sure they don't miss anything. And that's basically what we do as well as far as what's the economic environment, what are the fundamentals that matter, valuations, and then trading conditions as well as far as opportunities to enter or exit positions. But it's a systematic process. Brian, as a data guy, this past week was not your kind of week because there wasn't enough data. What's yeah. next week? Well, next week is really exciting because we get the Fed meeting. I mean, that's almost like kind of the the Super Bowl for economists, right? And we get that eight times a year to see the, these Fed announcements. Has anything been telegraphed? Uh, you know, the last time that they spoke, because they've been in their blackout period, they were suggesting that they want to maybe start tapering quantitative tightening that is slowing the pace at which they're reducing the size of their balance sheet. They're not ready to cut rates yet. The market seems Seems like it's a little antsy and pricing in a rate cut. We think it's probably going to be a little bit later and a little bit slower than what the market is pricing in. Dr. Brian Jacobson is our chief economist. Thank you for joining us thank on the show you. today. I always learn a lot. Dave Spano, our president and CEO. Thanks for steering the ship, buddy. Yeah, thanks. Nice uh, show again appreciate today. Appreciate it, folks. For you, your family, your children, financial planning is a gift. AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Work with a fee-only fiduciary. Click that Get Started button. You can do it this weekend. Thanks for spending time with us. Have a great week. See you next Saturday at 10. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ.